Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... 56% of my HSE, I failed at university, I never finished a degree, I've been bankrupt, ADHD, lots of things that people would probably use as reference points to go, well, look at that, you know, I'm never going to make it. But I want people to know that that's actually part of my personal history because it didn't define how I kind of conducted myself in business and was able to grow Booktopia. Tony Nash and his co-founders had built Booktopia into an e-commerce empire, all homegrown. Remember, it started out as a nighttime side hustle while Tony continued in his day job by single-mindedly focusing on their own online book offering to customers and not worrying so much about the 800-pound gorilla in the online book market, Amazon. A mammoth task indeed, but one the co-founders pulled off. But in early 2020, as they were about to gear up for another massive scale-up of operations and numbers of books shipped out per day, the COVID-19 pandemic struck. So what happened to Booktopia? Did they sink or swim in the months of anxiety and stress for so many businesses as we all changed the way we worked and played? Here's part two of my chat with Tony Nash, where the entrepreneur also reveals his own highly unorthodox and even troubled path to the heights of business, including how he handled a tax issue and a medical condition many would regard as a distinct barrier to business success. Hope you enjoy Tony Nash. Tony Nash, welcome back. Part two to our chat. You decided to go public last year. We've talked about that a bit in part one. Was it partly a case of wild valuations given to companies or did you get to where you want to go faster by being a public company? There's so many aspects to that. It's hard to say it's because of one thing. Ultimately, ultimately for me, the idea of having our team, people who work at Booktopia, and our customers to own a piece of us is very, very inspiring and important to me. So that was uh, fundamentally the main thing. Once you get involved in the process, you realize how little chance your customers really do get to participate in such a thing because that's not how the brokers want to play it. They've got all their mates and companies that are their clients who they want to make sure get the deal. So now that we're on the exchange, anyone can buy into Booktopia. So that, that was one thing. The, but the, the capital raising and, and getting access to capital was another. But truth is, yes, once we saw what was going on with the pandemic and that felt like that even though e-commerce was getting increasing in terms of its appetite and interest in the markets, was like all of a sudden you've moved from the, the side wings onto center stage, the theater is darkened and the spotlight is on e-commerce. We did an 11-week IPO, which was very, very quick, and we saw the opportunity and went for it. Thankfully, we had tried to IPO four years before, so a lot of the work in terms of the due diligence uh, required to making sure all the, a lot of the data room 
was there. We had a Pathfinder, which is the pre-prospectus document. Um, had needed updating, but had a lot of work put into it already. A lot of the graphics, various other things had been done that we could resurrect from before. But we did take advantage of the winds were definitely in the right direction and we just wanted to get through as quickly as we could. So it was a lot easier. So you raised, what, just over $40 million, I think, in December 2020 in that IPO, gave the business a market capitalization of about $315 million, mm. which, you know, must have been an incredibly proud moment for you. Mm. Once again, pride. Um, first, so a couple of things there. One, $18 million was shareholder sell-down and 25 was new capital right. for new shares. So that 25 was used, that came into the business. To innovate and, and invest yeah, yeah, in technology, to, et cetera. Yeah, and to put ourselves in a strong financial position. That's right. But the pride is, is this is how I describe pride. Uh, it's like being in a pitch black room where you can't even see the hand in front of your face and you know whether you're on track or off track. So it's a very internal process for me. So yes, there is an aspect to that. I'm on track. Or it mm, feels like I'm off track. No, it feels like I'm like, they say that a plane is on track 3% of the time and 97% of the time it's correcting. So pride for me in terms of the IPO, in terms of all of that, is just, it's just about we're on track. Booktopia is on its way to be a billion dollar company. And yep, there's another sign along the road to go, it's in the rear vision mirror and you are on track. That's how it feels to me. So you don't take great delight Again, is that that I don't want to go to the highs and then go down to the lows? I do, but I don't do it in a way that's, you know, like you wake up the next morning and you go, oh, my God, I've got a really bad headache because I partied like crazy. That's not me. Um, it's, it's, like, it's, it's like being on the bike, I guess, and being in the Tour de France and you, maybe something happens, maybe you overtake someone like a Formula One racing car driver, they do the best overtaking their whole life, right? They're still driving down the down. Yeah. You, you feel maybe in that moment you're kind of a little fist pump and you're on, on track, but you're just still on track. So that's how it feels to me. How do you like being public company so far? It's only great. five or six months. Results have been great. It's easy. We're smashing our prospectus numbers. So um, it's it's a good start. Of course, 2020 was marked by the COVID pandemic and we're still working our way through that. After initial worry, maybe panic even, in your business, no doubt then you went on to have an amazingly good year. Can you just tell us a bit about- No panic. No panic ever? No worry. No anxiety. Did sales ever go down? No, they went up right from the word go. But what we did have to address was- the extra volume because we had brought on that capital six weeks before. So we got an $8 million raise and a $12 million senior debt loan. So we had $20 million uh, that we had to play with, brought into the business. But that was to go into the new round of automation to get us from 30,000 books in and out per day to 60,000 out per day. And that wasn't going to go live until November. So we weren't going to see that being deployed till much later. So we were butting up against our capacity every single day of 30,000 books in and out per day. And that's when I talk about throwing too many people at it. You get diseconomies of scale. You're actually losing money by trying to hit those numbers. So through that time, we had to stop sales. This is March, April, May? Yeah, we had to stop our Google advertising or a lot of it. We had to change our website where it says normally ships next day or one to two days. We made it four to five days so people would turn away. Even though we were shipping in one to two days, 
to, to wow. reduce sales. You were we, actually turning away customers or wanting to turn away customers well, getting or them slow to, them down. Yeah, getting them to bounce out of our site and not place an order based on what they saw. Um, so there was, we had to do everything that we could to try and uh, minimize. Now, you would think that that's so lucky because there would be a lot when you didn't have to spend on all of that. But what we spent on protecting our team who were coming into the uh, warehouse every day, we had split teams. The first team would, instead of arriving at six, would start at five. We had a logical and physical break during the middle of the day where everything got wiped down and cleaned before the second team would arrive and they would finish at 12 instead of 11 at night. And we had to make sure that all those guys were protected. Everyone at the office was allowed to work from home. So a hundred odd people just went straight that day down working from home. And um, all your systems were in place for that? All of our systems are already in place. Yep. We just had to do the checks to make sure they had a decent workplace to operate and like everyone had to do in terms of work health and safety. Yeah. And off we went. So for me, it's worked out quite well. Because we couldn't get all the sales through last year that we possibly could have picked up, we had a very big uplift, like 60 to 70% up year on year. We would have been 125, maybe even 150% up. But the thing that um, people don't realize, some people think about the pandemic as some sort of tsunami of orders or of business, right? That inundates the land and then it's going to return back to kind of where the normal shoreline was. It's not like that at all. It's more like a Japanese bullet train that's actually shot us down the runway much further and faster. We were online was always growing over all the years, had this organic growth because we we were at 8% of all retail sales. E-commerce was at 8% of all retail sales. And in North America, it was a lot more. In Europe, it was even more. After the pandemic, our 8% has moved to 13%. And the US is at 21 and the UK is at 35. Now, what that means is that we're still in lag comparison to the rest of the world. But more importantly, because it went on for so long, people had a chance to change their behaviors. If the pandemic just went for a month, they probably would have returned back to what they used to do. But because it went on for so long, they've changed their habits. And that means that it's more of a bullet train than it is a tsunami. So it's probably not going to recede. It's going to keep really going forward, accelerating. Yeah. And the reason, this is my view on it. And this is not, not a researcher or you know someone doing their doctorate or someone from this McKin- is your gut feel or McKinsey's or anything like this. What I observed is that a lot of the Australian traditional big retailers did not put uh, e-commerce as a priority for them for them in their business, and they didn't need to. Even when Amazon arrived, everyone was worried. It was talked about in the boardrooms, but when Amazon didn't actually do much in terms of making a difference, they thought, ah. Oh, Amazon, yeah, they're here. It was more that when customers changed their buying behavior and then all of a sudden a lot more people were putting demands on their websites that they then decided we're going to throw more money at it. I remember in end of last year, Super Retail Group announced we're spending $100 million in our e-commerce offering, right? A lot of these companies. Now, that's why e-commerce is so big overseas. It's not because of us pure plays that are doing what we're doing. It's actually because all the retailers are focusing a lot of their resources and effort into having a great online experience. And that's what's going to change in Australia. With COVID though, you said for those first few months, you had to slow people down. At what point did books start flying off the shelves again? Well, they were always flying. No, no, they flew all the way, all the way through. But you said you had to slow down sales because you couldn't cope with slow capacity. Down. So we were doing, we were 60 to 70% up instead of the normal 25% up. Yeah. So we were up by a lot, lot more. And had we been able to do all our Google right, advertising yeah. and do all of the other promotions that we would normally do, uh, we would have been up 125 to 150, which means 
for me this year is that because we clipped last year where everyone else is kind of like really smashing it and now they're feeling like, oh, I'm flattening out a little, we're still riding that wave and we're still growing by a significant amount. You're also into other things, aren't you? I mean, you you do e-books, you do audible books, you do publisher services. I mean, you're growing in a number of areas. You've taken over a couple of booksellers, uh, made some acquisitions. You took over the co-op bookshop, which was much loved by university students, and you did that at a bargain basement price. What's the thinking briefly behind all that? Well, first of all, the Angus and Robertson one, or Angus and Robertson Book World, and we just called it Angus and Robertson, they were owned... They went under with Borders, Penguin Random House, or Penguin, the publisher, bought them. Then Penguin merged with Random House. Random House went through and said, why have you got a bookstore in your publishing business? Get rid of it. And they said, but we've just invested 20, you know, they invested a lot of money. They were losing about $3 million a year. So that acquisition was, that was one where we could see the opportunity by bolting it on, but we had to strip a lot of the wastage that was in there straight away. And that integration happened in 28 days. That was quite successful. And of course, they're 135 years old. So now we can say we're 135 years old, cheekily. Then there was the co-op. The co-op was because they went into administration and mainly because they had they'd focused on their yeah, Australian geographic business. I mean, why did you take over all these things? Because, so what, this is an interesting story, I think, for most um, entrepreneurs who are listening to, business owners who are listening to this. So in in about 2012, uh, we had turned, uh, or 2013, we had turned over 30 million. And our average selling price of a book was $15.50, I think. And we had shipped 1.6 million units. And I was exhausted after Christmas. Like, we were knackered. And I thought to myself, if we're going to get to 60 million, that's 3.2 million units. How the hell are we going to even do that? That's like, I just couldn't even imagine that you could get that out the door. And so I thought, hmm, so if we sold more $100 books, we would only have to sell 300,000 more books at $100 each on average to get to 60 million. And we've only gone from 1.6 million units to 1.9. We're going to sell more expensive books. So when we were holding stock, rather than those ones I was telling you about before, but coffee table books and box sets and collector's books, and we started to add all these in and they were selling because people wanted them and not all the bookshops were holding them. So that was going really well and our average selling price was going up. By the time we got to the end of that list, it was like, well, what else can we add? And I, I did a search of what we were selling, taught law. I have no idea what that is, but let's add it. Pathophysiology, I still don't have any idea, but let's add it. Fundamentals <laughs> of nursing, okay, I understand what that's about. And so, so we, started to, we started to add all these textbooks. tertiary, tertiary yeah. academic textbooks. And at the same time, Co-op had bought Australian Geographic and they started to put a lot of their energy and focus onto that retail chain. And we just continued to grow our academic business. And we were already up to about 40 or maybe $45 million in tertiary academic sales when the co-op, when we bought them, were down to 22. They were going backwards. So we were already quite big. And the purpose of me buying or taking over that business, of which we didn't take over any of the stores, is I, having come from sales, recruitment and solution selling, and my brother-in-law, IBM solution salesman, I knew we had a lot of customers, libraries, government departments, corporates buying books from us, and no one was taking care of those accounts by us or by anyone. So I wanted to cherry pick the very best uh, store managers from the co-op and Right in the middle of the pandemic, when they were looking to be made redundant and out of a job, I hired 12 of them and a national sales manager from 
that group to be on the phone and talking to those clients. So when someone placed an order for $17,000 or $4,000 or $6,000, hi, you know, my name's Tony. I'm also based in Adelaide and I just noticed you placed an order. I'm just going to email you now my, my mobile number, my email address, and I'm your person locally to take care of you. No one had been doing that. And so that business is going crazy. So why did I want it? Because I wanted those talented people who understood books to be part of our army of people out around Australia. What do you reckon you learned about yourself as a leader during COVID? I would say watch and listen to what everyone else is doing. No rash decisions. There's no prizes for making the right decision quickly. And it may only be another 48 or 72 hours, but just even people working from home. Okay. I remember one of my team members going, all the publishers have uh, sent their people home. Right. And I'm going, all right, thank you. We're not a publisher. Let's just keep doing what we're doing. Our customers are more important. And then within 48 or 72 hours, I was able to go, yeah, you definitely can do that. And we had worked out whether we had all the tech to do it, what they needed, et cetera. And they're all right, you guys need to work from home. So it's about not, you know, the chicken little, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. It's about um, being as grounded and using as much of the information as you can to make best guess decisions. Can we just do a bit of a step change? You grew up in Sydney. Was your family in business? Were they in retailing? Were they entrepreneurial? Were you entrepreneurial as a kid? Were you interested in business? I was interested in business. I wanted to be a millionaire. I wanted to be famous. I remember being in the kitchen, I would have been about 14, and saying to my mum, I want to be famous. And my mum goes, I couldn't think of anything worse. <laughs> and so it's like, oh, I didn't expect that you to say that. Okay. So there was something about wanting to be successful that was there, but I was terrible at school. I got 56% in my high school certificate and I, I struggled through school. Um, so, uh, so I don't, there was no inkling. My, my mum was, um, worked at, uh, she had, was a mature age student, got her degree uh, later in life, worked in special ed at Macquarie Uni, did a few other things in the university. And my dad, who was a textile chemist for Bonds, uh, went out and did his own consultancy in uh, the early 80s. And so had his own business, but it was more of a, a one-man business that provide consulting and also sold textile machines. So there wasn't a lot of entrepreneurship in my family. So would you say you said you, what, just passed your HSC with 56%, would you say you had perhaps an unorthodox high school and maybe even a difficult young adulthood? You started at Macquarie Uni, but I think you dropped out. Yeah, I mastered in space invaders and snooker um, and dropped out after six months because I failed in everything else in accounting and economics and became the mailboy at the NRMA. So Seriously, in the mailroom? Yeah, you know, remember the movies mm. in the 80s where the little trolley and and you had to fill out, you got those little yellow things mm. where someone put a, the next letter in and crossed out the name before and then put their name, the person who was going to. That's, that's like the email system. I was the email system of the 1980s at the NRMA, taking the letters to everybody. And, and so that was my first job. Why did you drop out of uni? I had failed and uh, it wasn't you know, nothing was going to happen there. But one of the things that I discovered many years later, in fact, it was in uh, only in the last four or five years, is that I have had ADHD and I've lived with it all my life. And back in high school, those, the acronym or those letters didn't even, wasn't, they may have been talked about somewhere 
in some university somewhere in the world, but we certainly had never heard of ADHD or ADD. And so uh, my son, who is doing his HSC at the moment, who was diagnosed with ADHD in year eight. And so through my wife, who's his stepmom, realized something was going on. And for me, it was just normal. You know, that's what I was like when I was a boy. And, and he goes, she goes, well, I don't think that's actually right. So he got diagnosed and there was a complete shift and change with him once he got onto his meds. And then she said to me, I reckon you've got it as well. And I said, well, you're right about my son. So off I went to a psychiatrist and spoke to him. And he said, after about an hour, there's no way you got ADHD. It's like, look at Booktopia, successful, so many projects, et cetera. And, and he goes, but before I make my final decision, can do you mind if your wife could come in and I can have a chat with her? And so a week later we go in and, and uh, he's asking lots of questions. I'm just sitting there. And after about 20 minutes, he looks at me and he goes, you definitely have ADHD. What I learned from that, and this is where it comes, ties everything back in, in terms of my history and also the success of Booktopia, is that you really love doing what you want to do and you hate doing what you don't want to do. So if you're passionate about something and get really excited about doing anything, it could be a jigsaw puzzle or it could be collecting something, it could be traveling, it could be whatever it is, is that you're in it and you're in it 100%. And that's why Booktopia ended up being successful, but also why I could then work out why I'm really struggle to sit down and concentrate and read something. And this, this is the issue with my, with my son when I'm looking at him going through the same confusing process of doing the HSC. It's actually not really well designed to assess whether someone that has that kind of mental health condition to whether they're actually worthwhile to enter society and do a job is actually one of the worst things you can do. And there's got to be a better way of calibrating whether we've got what it takes to be going out in the world and not just using the one system that um, assesses. The one thing I am seeing, though, is the teachers at his school are brilliant. They understand ADHD. They're on the ground and they can see how articulate he is, what a critical thinker he is, how, he's, how well he's doing. But when it comes to actually handing in assessments and having being overwhelmed with many at the same time, that actually does not work for someone with ADHD. So there's got to be better ways of helping um, and getting young people assessed so they can enter society. Yeah. Something's, there's a lot happening at a ground level. But a, at a, a sort of a system level, system level mm. is actually still in lag. They haven't caught up there. So, Tony, you're happy to talk about it mm. because you obviously could see that, you know, there's other people in society who act the same way, who have the same conditions. How did it impact your personal relationships, though? If you just do what you want to do and you're just single minded and you get distracted about other things and can't focus, that can't have been so good for personal relationships. Not at all. My wife really struggled in the beginning, but once I got on Ritalin, she went from nagging me about everything to actually me thinking, no, no, that, that needs to get done. Or I was actually finding myself on the front foot thinking about all of the things, chores and other things that needed to be done that were outside of Booktopia that were part of our home life. So our relationship uh, vastly improved because all of a sudden I was um, I was able to not get aggravated and irritated by all those things that I actually really didn't want to do. And by the nagging, no doubt, which, you know, happens in every relationship, but you actually couldn't with your condition maybe cope with it. Yeah, it just kind of, it was... It was more of a raw spot. It was a sore spot that yeah. just kind of created a out of proportion reaction to what actually needed to be done. So that's why I call ADHD for me a superpower. Because if I find something that I really want to do, like there's no stopping. It's like you just get obsessed. You want to make it happen. You do whatever it takes, but it comes at costs. And 
That's why when I think about Michelangelo, Shakespeare, you know, any of the great thinkers, artists, how was their home life? Was, was that a complete debacle and did, did everything work well and they were a good father and a mentor and a good healthy relationship with their wife or were they out gallivanting around and all over the place and completely distracted? And I, I think that this has been going on for many, many centuries, this kind of mental health, but of course it was undiagnosed. That's why I want people to know, like 56% at my HSE, I failed at university. I never finished a degree. I've been bankrupt, ADHD, lots of things that people would probably use as reference points to go, well, look at that. You know, I'm never going to make it. But I want people to know that that's actually part of my personal history because it didn't define how I kind of conducted myself in business and was able to grow Booktopia. Um, it's really important that people understand that it's actually, we've all got stuff. And there's all different pathways to success and they don't necessarily all follow the go and get the best university degree, a doctorate, go and work for a management consultant, then go and make a hundred million bucks by coming up with a great idea. Is one way, that's right. There are many paths, one destination. How did being a bankrupt though impact you? Because how are you a director of companies? Well, once that's you know, once you've completed the bankruptcy of three years, then you can you can do that. Right. So you can come back as a director straight away? Yeah, as long as you've done your three years. Yeah. So do you mind me asking, when were you bankrupt? Um, the early 2000s. It's actually nothing to do with business. People think it was to do with business. I actually, a financial planning guy said, oh, there's this great investment vehicle to invest in films. And so and then it can offset your tax and then you can reuse it in this way. And so I, I did that and it was really helpful and good. But the tax office decided to stop that. But not only stop it, they decided to backdate it to the beginning of several years. So I owed the tax office $250,000 and I just didn't have that money to be able to pay them. I had sold my house and put all the money into my company, which then uh, through the dot-com crash, that was all lost. Um, so I didn't really have any assets. So to me, it was the right thing to do because I could just square everything away. Credit card company was ringing me every single day. When are you going to pay? When are you going to pay? And there was still so much money to be paid back that it was just easier to go, I tell you what, I'm going to just go bankrupt. And I gave them my bankruptcy number. Oh, thank you so much. Great. All right. Uh, so will I be hearing from you guys? No, no, we've got that on file. That's good. So the you know, $30,000 on my credit card that I owe you. No, no, that's, no, we've got that on record now. It's fine. And so I could, and with the tax office, everything was squared away. So I could, you, there are limitations. You can only earn so much. There's a whole bunch of things that you're limited, as you say, being a director and so forth. But hmm, I had to learn my lesson. It did help in terms of being so entrepreneurial. And so like, I really wanted to be as successful as I could. And then having things, even though it wasn't through business, backfire that understanding of risk and therefore not being as bold as perhaps I may have done in the past, made sure that I was always conservative. I, I also had my brother there who ha hates parting with his money. So um, I, I, I always- <laughs> So he was a good partner. I was always, you know, I was always very restricted. Reined in a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Just back to the ADHD, you now said you're taking Ritalin, but for many decades you had no medication. How did you cope? You didn't have a diagnosis either. That's right. So it's kind of like, well, that's the way I am. Yeah. So. Um, I knew that I, if I wanted to be, I could be really successful. Um, I had been as a recruiter and you kind of make up stories about why, why it is the certain way that I, even just saying, I've been, you know, I have been, I got 56% of my HSC. I went to uni where I mastered in Space Invaders and Snooker. I mean, that's not, of course, true. Although I did play a lot of Space Invaders and Snooker. Funnily enough, I also did 
Um, there was a game on the Vax computer called um, Zork, which was like a Dungeons and Dragons text-based game. And I was being caught in the uni at like two in the morning by the security guards because I had snuck in and was playing this game, right? And it was funny because Macquarie Uni asked me about five years ago to be the um, the guest speaker at the business school's 2000 graduate ceremony. And I had to speak for 10 minutes in the room where I, where I was, um, where I was playing till two in the morning before I got kicked out. Like I said to, I told the, the people there, I said, that's what happened. And I said, look, you've done much better than me. So you're off to a great start. Do you have a business motto or values that you stick to? I guess the way that you've asked that, you'd think I'd respond with an immediate response and saying, yes, I guess I don't really think about that. I'd say it like this. The, and just hear me, hear me out if you could. Like, imagine you own a Maserati, right? And as Maseratis are prone to do, they, they're Italian cars. They, um, they sometimes break down. So on this particular day... The, the Maserati is at the workshop with the mechanic and the mechanic gives you the 15-year-old two-door Fiat loaner. And so you've got a meeting down in Double Bay with an important new client and you think, well, you know, I'll just park in one of the back streets because no one will see it and therefore I can rock up and meet these new clients. And when you get down there, all the parking spots are taken and there's only one spot in front of the cafe restaurant uh, right in front. And you go, well, late is late and on time is on time, I better park. And as you're getting out of this 15-year-old Fiat, you see a new client, they see you, and they see this little old car that you're getting out of, and you're saying, yeah, but I own a Maserati. You know, it's like, that's not my car. I have a Maserati. I'm worth a lot of money. And you got to be able to get out of that car, and you are you. doesn't matter what car it is. And you got to be get out and talk to those clients, and it's not about the car. It's like you are not your boyfriend, you are not your girlfriend, you're not your kids, you're not your kids' sporting results or academic results, you are not your sports team, even though best friend of mine, he thinks he's the Richmond Tigers, I can assure you, right, when they win the pennant, but like, and you are not your business. And so if you know that you're not, like when Booktopia wins Telstra Business Award of the Year or it's listed on the ASX, it's not me. I don't own all of it. I started it and I have some shares in it, but Booktopia is Booktopia. And that ability to separate myself from the organism that is Booktopia, to me, has been super, super important. So I remember when I started Booktopia, the very, very beginning, which we talked about earlier, walking through the apartment and past the door where I had my little office, and I stomped dead in my tracks because I heard ba-boom, ba-boom. I heard the little heartbeat of my business. And I had not felt that in other businesses. I remember when it crawled. I remember when it took its first steps, went to kindy, went to primary school, high school, when it grew up. And thinking about what does that organism need? What does that business need? And certain people, certain roles, money, doing a capital raise, all these things is in a similar kind of parental way taking care of, of this. And if you ask me, okay, what's your motto about business? That's super important, separate that separation. Because I, if it was up to me and my ego, and my own limiting beliefs about myself, Booktopia would probably be 8 million or 10 million or something because I'm sure there would be some way that I would be self-sabotaging it to ensure that it stayed within who I thought about myself, but it didn't. I think that's really important to understand in answering your question in a long way. That's so interesting as a way to think about business as well. Booktopia does have a strong philanthropic thread. So 
whether that comes from you, you're just saying have a separate one, but you do help giving out books to those who are disadvantaged? Yeah, so that drives from me in terms of our philanthropy. It's a double-edged thing in terms of our customers are very passionate, educated, opinionated, purpose-built people. And so therefore, they they probably have an expectation about who and how companies think and operate. And I want it to be on the front foot. I want it to be giving back. And therefore, it all started from that. I remember when the Kathy Freeman Foundation rang me many, many years ago and said, look, we're the young girl who was making a cold call to me and said, look, this is what we're doing. There's a program up on Palm Island where Kathy is from. And they're doing this thing where at the end of every half year and year, they get a book pack and, and the other quarter years, they get a sports pack. And I was just wondering whether, you know, you could give us you know, maybe books. And because we were buying a lot of uh, remainder titles, which is the overstocks that publishers have, which you see on those trestle tables outside the front of a bookshop. I said, yeah, yeah, fine. We, you know, we can help. We're in. And I got a call about half an hour later from the person running it. Uh, I just spoke to whatever her name was. And she said that you're okay to do. Oh yeah, yeah, no, we're fine. You want anything else from us? No, no, no. Do you, do you need Kathy to do something for you? No, 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 no. Just happy. It sounds like a great program. We should do it. All right. Okay. And they were quite shocked that there wasn't all these other hurdles and things. It just felt right that what they were doing is the right thing. It was, for me, it's about books and it's about literacy and it's about making sure that no one's left behind. A few quick questions that I'm asking all my guests. What are you obsessed about at the moment? Be it a film, a book, a cause, a thought? Mm, Family. At this stage where Booktopia is uh, where it's at, it's about, for me, in many ways, it's about family, my wife and my kids, my dad. um, You still mates with your two partners, brother and brother-in-law? Well, my brother's retired in October, so he's off uh, with his wife doing lots of fun things that they never had a chance to do. Steve and Alana, my brother-in-law, my sister are still in the business, so I see them every day um, or every weekday. And friends, and it's great to catch up with, with friends. What's the toughest thing you faced, do you think, in your entrepreneurial journey? Probably just continuing to fund our growth and do it organically and have the patience and persistence for it to just continue to grow without, you know, without at, a, at a certain rate. It was still very big, like most high double-digit growth, but it was always uh, a restriction. What's the biggest lesson you've learned along the way? I would say like if when you ask that, the immediate thing that pops into my mind is it's like, okay, so if I was to start again, what am I going to draw on? To, to me, um, right from the beginning, someone mentioned to me, focus on your cash flow, making sure that the cash, you've got more cash at the end of the month than more month at the end of the cash. And that's really important. Um, I want to know that the money is coming through to fund it. A great idea is only a great idea until it's self-funding. So it's, you've got to have the money coming through. Tony Nash, it's been great to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me on Build It, They'll Come. I wish we had more time, like two more hours, surely. Oh, surely. Yes, well, maybe you'll come back. That'd be great. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.